today on The Conversation with Dr. Scott Camp. He was more than a teacher. He was more than a miracle worker, more than a philosopher. You know who Jesus is, man? He's God who came in the flesh. He stepped down the starry steps of eternity into time, and he wrapped up his deity in flesh, and the creating one became the cradled one. God became a man in the person of Jesus. Look at me. Listen, you know why he did it? He did it for one reason. He did it for others. Welcome to The Conversation with Dr. Scott Camp. Dr. Camp has survived a life of drug and alcohol abuse and incarceration. Since giving his life to Christ, he has been a pastor, evangelist, author, college professor, and dean of students. Dr. Camp has also been a program guest with the Billy Graham Crusade. His unique blend of life experiences have given him a powerful, relevant ministry to reach the unreachable with the message of Christ. Now, let's listen as Dr. Camp delivers a sermon on living a gospel-centered life. I want you to take your Bible this morning and turn to Philippians chapter 2. I was so excited when pastor said, Scott, we want you to come, and we're in the book of Philippians, and so we want you just to kind of join right in where we are, because this is my favorite book in all of the Bible. It's a very, very powerful book, as I know you're finding out. It was somewhere around 52, 53, that Paul left Asia Minor, went across the Aegean Sea, And for the first time, Christianity flowed over the narrow banks and provincialism of Judaism, Samaria, Judea, and for the first time, the gospel came into Europe, an area known as Macedonia, northern Greece. And Paul came into a little city called Philippi. It was a Roman colony. And there he met some women. There weren't evidently enough Jews. You know, Paul's strategy was always to go into the synagogue first, and there he would preach the gospel to Jews who had gathered on the Sabbath to worship Yahweh, to worship the Lord. But evidently there weren't enough Jews in the city of Philippi, and so there were some women who loved God, and they would meet at a river and pray and worship God. And Paul went down by the river and met a lady by the name of Uh, a lady that was by the name of Lydia that was a businesswoman, a wealthy woman there in the city. And there she came to know God. She came to know Christ. God opened her heart. And she was the first European convert. And then Paul went into the Agora, into the marketplace, began to preach Jesus. And there he encountered a demon-possessed girl. He cast the demon out, and she got saved. I'm sure she brought a lot of her friends to Christ. And then Paul was put in jail because of his witness of the gospel, and God sent a mighty earthquake to that jail. We're talking about jailhouse rock, amen? I mean, God sent a mighty earthquake at midnight, and the Philippian jailer got saved, and it was from that that gathering of people, a wealthy businesswoman, a teenage former demon-possessed girl, and a Roman guard and his family that the nucleus of the church at Philippi was formed. Well, that church became one of the most powerful churches that we know about in the New Testament. Paul went on with his journeys, was later imprisoned in Rome. Watch this, 10 years after the founding of the church at Philippi had gone by, 
and now Paul is in a Roman jail cell. He really doesn't know how much longer he'll be alive. He's praying that God will open the door for him to get out and revisit the churches that he had established. Matter of fact, Paul, as an apostle, has this great love and concern and care for the churches. And one of the reasons that he writes this book, he writes it for several reasons. He writes it to say thank you for sending the gift to support my ministry through the hands of this man named Epaphroditus, and the church we'll read about in a moment. And then he writes to say, I'm okay, because they were concerned about his welfare. He was in jail, and they, they knew he was being persecuted. His life was on the line. It would just be a few short years later until Nero would execute Paul, sever his head from his body. But Paul wanted the church at Philippi to know, hey, I'm okay. As a matter of fact, listen to this. He said, as a matter of fact, my circumstances have not robbed me of my joy. I talked to a lady at a church not long ago. You know, church people, I've always loved sinners. Church people drive me crazy. Amen? And uh, I talked to this lady. She, you know, some of the meanest people I've ever met in my life go to church every Sunday. Amen? And uh, I was talking to this lady. She had a face so long, it looked like she could strand straight-legged and lick buttermilk out of a gopher hoe without moving an inch. That's a long face. Amen. And I said, how you doing, sister? I wanted to say, why don't you stand and lead us in a word of criticism? Amen. But I didn't. I said, how are you doing, sister? And she said, well, I'm all right under the circumstances. I said, man, what are you doing under there? Amen. I mean, you don't have to be under the circumstances. Paul was in jail. But he never lost his joy. As a matter of fact, this letter has been called the epistle of joy. The word joy or rejoice is used 16 times in four chapters. Here's what Paul's saying. He's saying, don't worry about me. I'm okay. I haven't lost my joy. As a matter of fact, I'm so focused on the gospel that all of the Roman guards that have been trying to guard me have found out that I'm not the one that's really in prison. They're the ones who need to be set free. And they They've come to know Jesus as a result of me being in here. He's writing to say, thanks for the love gift. He's writing to say, I'm okay. He's writing to say, I hope to be able to come and see you guys in a short period of time. And then one other thing, and then we'll get to the text. Everybody look right this way. He's also writing to say, you guys need to put down your own agendas, your own power plays, because evidently by the time you get to chapter 4, you find out his subtle agenda. Evidently, there are two ladies in the church. Could have been two men. It just happened to be two ladies who were very, no doubt, very godly ladies who loved Jesus. How many of you know sometimes circumstances can cause the upright to get uptight? Amen. And evidently, because of some circumstances that had begun to come into the church, maybe even some persecution, maybe some economic hard times, there were two of these ladies who were powerful figures in this church, and somehow Yodius and Syntyche had gotten crossways with each other. And now people were beginning to divide up sides. Well, I think Yodius is right. I think Syntyche is right. And watch what's happening. Watch this. Listen. The church at Philippi, the, the celebration church, the, the fellowship of joy at Philippi is beginning to fragment. And as a result, they're losing their joy how many of you, spell joy with me, spell it, J-O-Y. You know what joy is, don't you? Joy is when you put Jesus first 
and others second and you last. And the church had lost its joy because of selfish ambition and pride and quarreling and all the things that are so contrary to what it means to live a gospel-centered life. And so Paul is giving a subtle rebuke and saying to these two precious ladies, hey, come together for the cause of the gospel. And what he begins to do, beginning really the whole second chapter, is Paul saying, let me give you four examples of what it means to live a gospel-centered life. And the first example he gives, of course, is Jesus. He says, let this mind be in you which was also in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the very form of God, the Greek word there is morphe, it is the essential essence that makes something what it is. In other words, listen to this, Jesus was more than a prophet, he was more than a teacher, he was more than a miracle worker, more than a philosopher. You know who Jesus is, man? He's God who came in the flesh. He stepped down the starry steps of eternity into time, and he wrapped up his deity in flesh, and the creating one became the cradled one. God became a man in the person of Jesus. Look at me. Listen, you know why he did it? He did it for one reason. He did it for others. He did it for others. They spat in his face. They ripped his beard out by the roots. They disfigured him. They put a crown of thorns on his head. They beat him in the, in the head with a stick until it drove the thorns deeper and deeper into his brow. They spat on him. They ripped his skin open with a cat of nine tails. They hung him on a cross, and it was all for one thing. It was for others. It was for others. And so Paul says, come on, come on, be like Jesus. Let this mind be in you. And then Paul says... Be like me. You've seen the example of my own life. He even says that I've been poured out. I've poured myself out like a, lab, like a libation offering, a drink offering. I've been poured out so that you could have joy. And then he says, be like Timothy. And that's where we start our passage. Take your Bible, look at Philippians chapter 2, and look at verse number 19. So he says, watch, he says, live a gospel-centered life. Seven out of ten, ten teenagers say, I don't know what's worth dying for. What they're really saying is, I haven't found a reason to live. Let me give you a reason to live. Jesus, amen? Jesus, the gospel. Be like Jesus, Paul says. Live for others. Be like me, Paul says. And then he says, be like Timothy. Look at, look at Philippians chapter 2 and verse number 19. He says, I trust in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you shortly. When I may also, so that I can be encouraged when I know your state, when I know how you're doing. For I have no one like-minded who will sincerely care for your state, because everybody seeks their own, not the things which are of Christ Jesus. But you know his proven character, that as a son with his father, he has served me in the what? Say it, church. In the gospel. It's all about the gospel, Paul is saying. But I trust shortly, or verse 23, therefore I hope to send him at once as soon as I know how it goes with me, but I trust in the Lord that I myself shall come to you shortly. Here's what he's saying. He's saying, listen, be like Jesus, and if you think that's too far removed, then be like me, and if you don't think you can be like me, here's my son Timothy, be like him. Now, we know about Timothy. His name means one who honors God. If your name is Tim or Timothy, man, what a great name. It means one who honors God. Twenty-four times in the epistles, Timothy is mentioned. He's talked about, and he's always called Paul's son. You know how he got converted. You remember how he got converted? 
He was raised by a grandmother and a mother who loved, who loved the Lord. And when Paul came to their town on one of his missionary journeys, no doubt they had received Christ and they brought Timothy up in the nurture and the admonition of the Lord. 2 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 14 and 15 talk about this, how from a childhood uh, Timothy knew the Holy Scriptures which were able able to make him wise unto salvation. Now I didn't grow up in the church. If you got a mom and dad who got you up this morning and got you ready and said, we're going to church, you ought to thank God for that. Because I didn't grow up like that. My mama was 15 years old when she got pregnant with me. Nobody in our family knew God. My maternal and paternal grandparents were alcoholics. My dad was a teenager. In those days, if you got your girlfriend pregnant, you got married. That's what my parents did. They didn't know anything about love. They had never seen what it means to really know Jesus or love Jesus or follow Jesus. And so they moved into a little hovel of a house over on the wrong side of the tracks in a town called Wichita Falls, Texas. And that's where I began my life. When my mom was still a teenager, she started tending a bar in the rough area of Wichita Falls. My dad became a truck driver. I never knew my dad when I was growing up. Both my parents became serial adulterers. I saw my mom with one man after another, after another, after another. And when I was in second grade, I'll never forget coming home from my elementary school, standing between my mom and my dad, dodging flying pots and pans and flying cuss words and flying accusations. And as an eight-year-old little boy, my parents threw in the towel on their marriage. They got a divorce. And all I can tell you, some of you have been through that. All I can tell you is that day something on the inside of me died. And I became a very angry little boy. I started getting in trouble at school at a young age. When I was in the eighth grade, somebody introduced me to alcohol. They said, try this, you'll like it, and I did. Two years later, I was addicted to alcohol. When I was a sophomore in high school, somebody handed me my first marijuana joint, the gateway drug. They say, you'll like this, it'll make all your problems go away. And two years later, I was addicted to both drugs and alcohol. There wasn't a day of my life where I wasn't stoned, wasted, high out of my mind. Now, on the outside, I looked like I had it together. Because I was a 220-pound fullback going to play college football, and I could put on my leather jacket, strut up and down the halls of my high school campus like I had the world by the tail. But it was just me and four walls and darkness. I'd cry myself to sleep every night. Because I didn't think anybody loved me. I felt so lonely. They would stand in the high school football stands and they'd call my name over the loudspeaker. Everybody would clap, but I'd go home and think about taking a pistol out, putting in my mouth and blowing my brains all over the side of my bedroom wall. I was empty. I was lonely. I felt guilty. I was afraid to die. I was just like seven out of ten teenagers in America. I had no reason to live. My life was so out of control, it was kind of like a soap opera. I mean, as the world turned, I was one of the young and the restless who was in a constant search for tomorrow. And then one day, the guiding light took me by the hand, led me through the secret storm, and promised me I could live with him in another world and be part of all my children. Amen. I mean, God changed my life. I want to tell you how it happened. My senior year in high school, my best friend's dad was in the Mexican Mafia. And they would smuggle drugs across the border from Matamoros up into the Dallas-Fort Worth Metroplex. And there my friend and I would sell dope to all of our friends in high school. 
My friend always had a wad of $100 bills in his pocket. He drove a brand new T-Bird that he bought with his own money. And I thought, man, that's the way I want to live my life. And that's the way I started living my life. One dope deal after another, empty on the inside, no reason, no purpose, floating from one girl to another, one game to another, one party to another, empty, dying on the inside. In January of 1980, my friend pulled up into the park, uh, into, into the driveway at our high school, or at my house, and honked the horn. I came out of the house, jumped in the car, and we lit up a couple of joints, got high on the way to school. It was January the 7th, 1980. And in a classroom, a geometry classroom, listen to me, my senior year in high school at 8 o'clock in the morning, already high, there were three teenage girls that got a burden for my soul. They found out what life's all about. They were living their life for one purpose, and that was for Jesus Christ and for His gospel. I found out later, they went to a little Baptist church out in the middle of nowhere, their youth group. Listen to this. God had visited their youth group. And when their youth group got together, man, they didn't worry about going on little youth group trips or playing little youth group games. I found out later they would fall on their face and they would cry out that God would send a revival to our high school campus. I found out later they made a top ten list of the worst kids in our high school who they wanted to say get, get, they wanted to see get saved before the end of the school year. And guess whose name made number one on the list? You're looking at him right now. I found out later that they would many times skip lunch in the cafeteria and they'd go in the library and they'd form a little circle of prayer and they'd get out their Bible and they'd read some scripture and then they'd get out the prayer list and they'd start going down their list at lunch. Listen, I'm talking about high school students who found a reason and a purpose to live. And they'd say, Scott, God, God saved Scott Camp. God saved Celso Jimenez. God saved Steve Phipps. God saved Tony Moody. And down the list they'd go praying for us, weeping over us. And so it was in January the 7th, 1980, 8 o'clock in the morning in a geometry class that Kelly, one of those girls, we're friends to this day. Everybody in our high school knew Kelly. She had big, beautiful blue eyes and beautiful blonde hair. She was very popular at our high school. She was on the drill team. She was a straight-A student. But Kelly came to the point in her life where nothing mattered to her except the only two things that are going to last forever. Listen to me, man. Your car is not going to last forever. Your house is not going to last forever. You're not going to last forever. Your body's not going to last forever. There's only two things that are going to last forever, the Word of God and the souls of men. And Kelly got a burden for my soul. Eight o'clock in the morning, she reached, reached across the aisle, and she tapped me on the shoulder. I was already asleep in class. And I'll never forget looking into her eyes, those big, beautiful blue eyes, and tears had formed in her eyes and were trickling down her cheeks. As she said to me, Scott, do you know why you're so miserable? Look at me and listen to me, man. I'm talking to somebody in this room this morning, somebody that's empty on the inside. You've been looking for the answer to life in the bottom of a bottle, and when you suck that bottle dry, you're more empty than the bottle is. You'll never find happiness. Some of you teenage guys think, man, if I could just date this girl, I'd be happy. Or if I could just date this girl, I'd be happy. Or if I could just date anybody, man, I mean, I'd be happy. But there's not a person or a position or a possession that can fill the empty void in your heart, man. Only Jesus can do that. <laughs> Kelly said, Scott, do you know why you're so miserable? I said, why don't you tell me? And she began to weep. She said, because you don't know Jesus. 
And then another girl named Angela Allen. Her name now is Angela Paxton. Her husband is the new attorney general in Texas. We're friends to this day. Angela said, Scott, listen to me. She said, don't you know that Jesus died for you? And did you know I'd never heard that before in my life? I mean, I'd heard about Jesus, and I'd seen crosses, and some of you have a cross around your neck this morning. But do you understand what Jesus was doing when he hung there covered with blood and spit and sweat and dirt suspended between heaven as though rejected by both? Do you understand what Jesus was doing? He was taking all the sins that you've ever committed and all the sins I've ever committed. And the Bible says the one who knew no sin became sin for us in our place. He was dying for me and dying for you so that we could be made right with God and she said Scott Jesus died listen she said he died for you and then she said watch this she said he rose from the dead they took his dead body down off the cross and put him in a hole in the ground and rolled a big stone over the mouth of the tomb and they said we're done with that smart aleck preacher that I temperate temperate carpenter's son from Nazareth and the Roman authority said that's what happens to every dirty stinking Jew who dares raise his voice there is but one Lord and his name is Caesar and the devil and the demons of hell got together that night in the belly of hell and they threw a party they said we've killed the son of God and now humanity is ours but the Bible's whoa somebody the Bible says early in the morning on the first day of the week that Mary came to anoint and embalm his body with spices but when she got to the tomb she found the stone was rolled away and the tomb was empty and Jesus is alive he's alive he's alive And another girl said, Scott, why don't you give your life to Christ? And I wish I could tell you that at 8 o'clock in the morning, I got on my knees and said, God, come into my life. Like we saw, by the way, over 40 people do last night at the Saturday night service. Over 40 people came to Jesus last night. But I didn't do it. I was so hard-hearted and so full of bitterness and hatred toward myself and everybody else, I think including God, that I stood up in the middle of that classroom. I said, I don't believe there is a God. I took his name in vain and stormed out of the classroom. Later on that day in the hallway, Kelly didn't give up on me. Look at me. She had found a reason to live like Paul, like Timothy, like Epaphroditus. She didn't give up. She came and put her little finger in my big face, and here's what she said. I'll never forget it. She said, Scott, you're the biggest phony on this campus. And she said, I'm going to pray for you every day until God changes your life. And one month later, in a discotheque in Arlington, Texas, called Grand Central Station, two Arlington police officers who had been looking for me for a long time finally caught up with me. They arrested me. They booked me on a felony. They later transferred me to Tarrant County Jail Cell in Fort Worth. And in that jail cell, listen to me, I can't explain it to this day, but somehow the Spirit of God came walking in to that jail cell convicted me of my sin I turned to Jesus I walked in the jail cell one person I walked out of the jail cell a different person because of the power of Jesus Christ and from that day to this I found the purpose for life I found did you hear what I said I said I found the purpose for life I found out what life's all about Life's not about getting a bigger house or getting a better car or having more money in the bank. Let me tell you something. I have never seen a hearse with a U-Haul behind it. Amen? You ain't going to take it with you when you go. There's only one reason to live. Paul says, be like Timothy. He was converted as a child. 
He was called to the ministry. In, in uh, Acts chapter 16, he found this young man. Paul went back to the city that had preached the gospel, and he found young Timothy, and the church said, this guy's on fire. And Paul said, come go with me. He was committed. Paul wrote to him in 2 Timothy and said, I know it's hard in Ephesus, but do not leave. Stay on the job. And the historian Irenaeus says that Timothy stayed there, listen to me, until an angry mob beat his brains out with a club. And Timothy opened his eyes in the very presence of Jesus himself, his crowning moment. He was faithful. He started out as Paul's servant and then became his son and then became a substitute. Paul said, I'm going to send Timothy to you. You know why? Listen to me. Because he is a gospel-centered person. There's only one thing he really cares about, and it's the gospel of Jesus Christ. Come on, Yodius and Sintaichi. Come on, Philippian church. Come on, celebration. Pull together for the cause of the gospel because in the end, that's all that's going to matter. And then he says Epaphroditus is a gospel-centered person. Look down at verse number 25. He says, I considered it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus, my brother, my fellow worker, and fellow. Look, how he, look what he calls Epaphroditus. He says he's my brother in chapter 1. He says he's a partaker of the gospel. In other words, Epaphroditus, somebody had told somebody in Philippi about Jesus who told somebody who told somebody who eventually told this man Epaphroditus who's name means charming and what a charming Christian he was he had become a Christian and then he went beyond just being saved let me tell you some of you I'm gonna tell you what the problem is with some of it you're satisfied just to be saved and to sit on your blessed assurance and wait for the rapture bus to swoop down and take you to heaven when God has a whole life for you to live for the sake of others Epaphroditus went from being just a, a brother to being a fellow worker. He helped Paul, chapter 1, verse 14, in the advance of the gospel. Then he was a fellow soldier, chapter 1, verse 27, says that we're to stand faithful and we're to defend the gospel like a true faithful soldier. And then he said, he's your messenger and the one who ministered to my need. He became a servant of the church and a servant of Paul. He became a steward. Look at this. He was longing for you all because he was distressed, because you heard that he was sick, for indeed he was sick. All, he almost died, but God had mercy on him. And not Epaphroditus found a reason to die. He was willing to lay down his life for the cause of the gospel. I was in Africa not long ago. When I think about this, man, it still shakes me. I watched on television as the Sudanese Christians celebrated their independence. They were dancing in the streets of Jubal. And I asked my Ugandan friend, I said, why are these people so happy? Listen to this. Here's what he said. He said, Scott, they're so happy in the South Sudan because for the last several decades, the Muslims have been coming down from the north part of Sudan, and they've been taking teenage young African, strong young men. And they said to these Christian teenagers, teenagers, they said, you follow a guy who died on a cross, don't you? And these young men would say, yes, I do. And then the Muslims would say, then you're going to die on a cross. And Time Magazine was there to take a picture of hundreds of Sudanese Christian young men who the Muslims nailed to the cross. You know what? They had found a reason to die. And that's why they had found a reason to live. 
They took the young ladies, teenage girls, and they said, if you don't turn your back on Jesus Christ, we're going to rape you. And that's what they did and sold them into the sex traffic industry. Listen, these young people were willing and are willing. There are parts in the world right now. See, in America, if our microwave doesn't work, we think the Lord has abandoned us. But there are parts of places in the world where people are still laying down their life for the gospel of Jesus. And that's what I'm praying will happen today. I'm praying we'll leave this place so focused on Jesus, so centered on the gospel, so inspired by these examples, so full of the Holy Ghost that if a mosquito bit you, he'd fly away singing, there's power in the blood. Amen? I mean on fire for God. Epaphroditus was sick. But verse 27 says, God had mercy on him. He healed him. He raised him up lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow. And so I sent him the more eagerly that when you see him, you may rejoice. There's that word joy. And I may be less sorrowful. Receive him therefore in the Lord, verse 29, with all gladness and hold such men in esteem. Why? Look at verse 30. Because for the work of Christ, for the gospel. Everybody say for the gospel. Everybody say it again. For the gospel. Because for the work of Christ he came close to death, not regarding his own life in order to supply what was lacking. He not only said, I'll give to the offering, he said, man, I'll risk, I'll hazard my life, I'll take the offering, and I'll identify myself with that apostle in prison because nothing matters more to me than the gospel. See, the bottom line is, you're either living Philippians 1.21 for me to live is Christ. Are you living Philippians 2.21? All men seek the things of themselves and not the things of you. Either, it's either one way or the other. And just because you go to church on, on Sunday morning doesn't mean you're really right with God. Let me tell you, I could spit in hell right now and hit a Baptist right on the head. I could throw a pitchfork in hell and hit a Catholic or a Methodist. It's not the church of Christ that saves you. It's the Christ of the church that saves you. You have been listening to The Conversation with Dr. Scott Camp. Today's special program was a sermon on living a gospel-centered life. To get a copy of Dr. Camp's book, A Primer on Power, or to partner with Dr. Camp, you can go to scottcamp.org. Thank you for listening to The Conversation with Dr. Scott Camp. Please tune in again Monday morning at 7.30 for a new conversation.